Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. This episode is going to be a free preview of one of the big perks of being a premium member of Legendary Upside, which is that I narrate the articles uh, that I post on Legendary Upside. In this case, I'm narrating the week two walkthrough, which is my behemoth game-by-game preview that I put out every week. Um, This is the first one of the season, but I'll be doing it through week 17. And I'll be narrating the portion of the article that I put up as part of a free preview. So if you actually want to listen to this and look at the article, because there's a ton of charts in there, um, you can actually see that free on the site and listen to this free on the site. You'll get three games that way. The rest of the games, the other 13 games that I cover, are behind the paywall. So go ahead and head over to legendaryupside.com and sign up if you want to hear the rest of this or read the rest of it. Oh, and if you're already a subscriber to Legendary Upside and you're having any issues setting up the premium podcast feed, just shoot me a note at legendaryupside at gmail.com and I can help you get that set up so that you can have all of these episodes just delivered to your podcast app and you can listen to them every week. Um, But let's go ahead and get to it. The title is Week 2 Walkthrough, Stefan Diggs, Target Funnel. Welcome to the Week 2 Walkthrough. In this article, published every week from Week 2 through Week 17, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for what will hopefully be an entertaining and injury-free week of football. The next section is a quick note on first-read targets. This week, I rely pretty heavily on first-read targets. A first-read target occurs when a receiver sees a target on the quarterback's first read. A few notes. The reason I like this stat most simply is that first read targets per route run or first read target rate is stickier than targets per route run or TPRR. It may essentially be a version of targets per route run with less noise. But I also think first read targets are especially interesting early in the season. Reason being, they can help us understand which receivers are running routes that are early in the progression. This element of team intent is critical in the early season as we try to decipher target pecking orders more quickly than our opponents. In discussing this stat with Ben Gretsch, he's noted that a first read isn't as simple as if player A is open, throw to player A. For example, a quarterback could be reading the reaction of a defender and then deciding between two receivers. In this scenario, we will credit the targeted receiver and learn nothing about the untargeted receiver, even though it was really up to a defender to determine which receiver was targeted. This makes the stat a bit harder to lean on since what are we even measuring? But hey, we're analyzing a game with 22 dudes hitting each other and running around very quickly. There are no clean football stats. And yet I do think Ben is correct to point out that first read targets are not a silver bullet. And I referenced them enough below that you might start wondering if I think that. But ultimately, I'm a fan of diving into the first read data. Even in the example above, I like knowing that the targeted wide receiver was early in his quarterback's progression, even if first read might not be as simple as it sounds. Presumably, a quarterback's first look in his progression will usually involve receivers the coaches believe in, and as much as possible, we want to know which receivers are in their team's plans going forward. We're sometimes going to be fooled by some small sample noise, but that's true of anything we look at from week one. Let's get to it. The stats below are from PFF, NFL FastStar, RBSDM.com, Rotoviz, Fantasy Labs, ESPN, NFL Next Gen, and Fantasy Life. The first game is Raiders at Bills. And I'll note that I'm doing all the 1 p.m. games first, 
then the later window games, then the Sunday night game, then the two Monday night football games. So it's sort of chronological. But I am doing the Bills game first because Stefan Diggs is this week's cover boy. Raiders implied team total 19.25. In Jimmy Garoppolo's first game with the Raiders, he looked like Jimmy Garoppolo. I've never been a big Jimmy G fan, but the dude has been consistently efficient, and he was impressively efficient against the Broncos. Then I have a chart here. This chart appears throughout the article uh, just showing EPA per game and success rate Jimmy G in the upper right quadrant of the chart performed pretty well. He now gets a Bills defense that looks solid against the pass and terrible against the run. But the Bills got to play Zach Wilson at quarterback and had to deal with Brees Hall at running back. So it's hard to know who they really are. Then I've got a matchup chart here. The Bills run defense really pops in this chart as being quite poor. But again, it's a little difficult to know if we can count on that. Garoppolo is buoyed by having two strong options in the passing game. And once cleared from the concussion protocol, Jacoby Myers looks well-positioned to build on his strong week one production. Garoppolo wasn't looking Myers' way randomly. The former Patriot was a major part of Josh McDaniel's week one game plan, earning a first-read target on an elite 29% of his routes. Then I have a comparison chart here of Devontae Adams, who had a first-read target rate of 24%, and Myers, who was at 29%. So Myers, even higher Uh, Myers also had the higher target share, 38% to 35%, and the higher targets per route of 42% to 31%. Adams' 24% rate was also very strong, indicating that the Raiders plan to run a concentrated passing game through him and Myers. If Myers misses the game, Adams looks like an elite play. And the Raiders may not run from a fight with the Bills' offense. Against the Broncos, Las Vegas passed 9% more than expected on 1st and 10, indicating they could be a solidly pass-first team this year. Then I've got a chart here showing the Raiders in the upper right-hand quadrant. Uh, This chart has pass rate on 1st and 10, uh, pass rate over expected on 1st and 10, uh, and pass rate over expected. So they are above average in both uh, metrics. The Raiders' potential to be pass-first is actually good news for Josh Jacobs, who continued to dominate backfield usage. Jacobs struggled as a rusher with very poor marks in the NFL Next Gen stats, but he hoarded team attempts while maintaining a strong role in the passing game. Then I've got Jacobs' chart here. He had 17 fewer rushing yards than expected per NFL Next Gen, but the workload is in place. He was second RB2 in expected points per game in Week 1. Jacobs should have a lock on the backfield's high-value touches like he did last year. If the Raiders are willing to keep things fun as the underdog this week, there could be plenty of high-value looks for him to soak up. Despite a disappointing debut, Jacobs looks like a very strong play this week. Bills implied team total, 27.75. Josh Allen struggled against the Jets, but he tends to do that. This week, he gets a Raiders defense that was putrid against the past last year. Only the Bears ranked lower in EPA allowed per dropback. Then I have a chart here, and the best way I can describe it is like, if it weren't for the Bears, the Raiders would have looked like an outlier in terms of their EPA allowed per dropback. But the Bears were so bad that the Raiders like kind of look like they're in the mix. But they were very poor against the past last year. Facing a potentially washed Russell Wilson, Las Vegas finished 25th in EPA allowed per dropback, and 25th in dropback success rate last week. Then I have a chart here showing that the Raiders are quite poor against the pass. 
also shows that the Bills were letting up quick pressure at a very high rate. They ranked 31st in quick pressure allowed per dropback. The Bills struggled to protect Josh Allen against the Jets, but the Raiders also failed to generate pressure quickly last week. If the Bills can better protect Allen against a lacking Las Vegas pass rush, he should be much more effective. Allen's three interceptions were backbreaking for the Bills, and they hurt his efficiency. He finished quarterback 18 in EPA per play. But Allen was pretty solid when he wasn't turning the ball over, finishing quarterback 5 in success rate behind only Matthew Stafford, Trevor Lawrence, and Justin Herbert. Then I've got another EPA per game chart here. Allen's success rate being quite good is generally like an indication that he might regress positively in terms of his overall efficiency. The Raiders provide an ideal bounce-back environment, making Allen the ultra-high-ceiling quarterback you drafted him to be. Allen's potential for a huge game is big news for his receivers. Gabe Davis and Stephon Diggs are again locked in as the top two wide receivers, but the distance to the number three wide receiver is much wider than in 2022. Against the Jets, Deontay Hardy saw just 26% route participation. Then I've got a chart here from Fantasy Life showing the route participation um, of the all of the, the Bills wide receivers. Gabe Davis at 94%, Stephon Diggs at 92%, Deontay Hardy all the way down at 26%, Khalil Shakir, and Trent Sherfield at 12%. So a huge gap to the wide receiver three this week. This is only surprising if you consider Dalton Kincaid a tight end. And to be honest, I don't know why we should. The Bills clearly don't. Kincaid posted 76% route participation in his NFL debut, despite the fact that Dawson Knox had an elite 78% rate. Then I've got another chart here from Fantasy Life. This showing what I just said. 78% 78% for Dawson Knox, 76% for Dalton Kincaid, Quentin Morris down at 6%, but two tight ends playing like legitimately full-time roles uh, for that position. The Bills passed the ball out of 12 personnel, which is one running back and two tight ends, on 57% of their dropbacks. This is a bonkers rate, considering that the Ravens led the league with a 35% rate in 2022. Every NFL stat provider believes Dalton Kincaid is a tight end. What this article presupposes is, maybe he isn't. Kincaid not only ran 59% of his routes from the slot, but he ran 33% of his routes from the outside. If the Bills want to move Stephon Diggs into the slot, they aren't necessarily limited by having Kincaid and Knox on the field. They're willing to treat their first-round rookie like an all-around receiver. Kincaid also looks to be involved in the play-action game, the bread and butter of traditional tight end routes. He saw four targets against the Jets, with one of four coming via play-action. Then I have another chart here from Fantasy Life showing that uh, Kincaid had a 25% play-action target rate. He was the only tight end targeted on play-action, which is really good. I wrote an article this summer uh, highlighting the importance of play-action targets for tight ends. I'm already chalking up Kincaid's usage is one of my biggest misses of the offseason. I spent approximately 13 hours arguing against Kincaid on live streams. That'd be 12.95 hours with Liam Murphy and three minutes with Mike Leone. My slam dunk case was that Kincaid is a tight end and would therefore need to work ahead of Knox in the passing game to earn a full-time role. But the Bills have weighed in and they don't care even a little bit about how he's listed on the depth chart. Kincaid looks like a clear win as a wide receiver with tight end eligibility, except on FFPC where he'll presumably be moved to quarterback. 
However, I'd like to take a break from eating crow to know that the jury is still out on whether Kincaid is actually any good. Even by tight end standards, his advanced stats weren't very good outside of strong route participation. I've got a chart here of Kincaid's week one results. He had a 2% air yard share, uh, 0.17 whopper, first read target rate of just 8%, targets per route of 11%, not good. Kincaid's 11% targets per route run was very weak, as was his 8% first read target rate. The Bills clearly like the offensive looks that Kincaid allows them to show defenses, but it's not yet clear that he will be a featured piece of the passing attack. Long term, I expect the rookie to improve his target numbers, but for this week, I remain somewhat skeptical. Then again, Kincaid will be playing a ton in a potential Allen blow-up game, so he can't be ignored. But Kincaid's usage is amazing news for Stefan Diggs. Diggs was already sharing an offense with Gabe Davis and Dawson Knox, who were both poor target earners. Kincaid may ultimately prove to be a target hog, but for now, the rookie tight end only makes the more reliable Diggs a more appealing option for Allen. Against a very poor Las Vegas secondary, that creates a huge ceiling. Diggs is coming off a 33% target share. Against the Raiders, he could see the highest target total of the week. Then I have a chart here showing the Bills wide receivers. Stefan Diggs with a 33% target share. Gabe Davis was the next highest at just 10%. James Cook should also benefit from the Bills' improved passing game efficiency. Cook posted an impressive 15% target share, which is a very good sign given the Bills' traditional hesitancy to pass to their running backs. Cook's rushing ability remains in question, however. Cook struggled with consistency as a rookie, posting a very poor 35% success rate per NFL Next Gen. He was even worse against the Jets, logging a 25% success rate. Then I have a chart here on James Cook. I will note he was actually pretty good in rush yards over expected per attempt. He's kind of been a boom-bust rusher. Uh, to start his career, and that continued last week. Cook should be involved in the passing game fun, but if the Bills are in position to salt away the game, they'll likely turn to Damian Harris or Latavius Murray. The next game is the Seahawks at the Lions. The Seahawks implied team total, 21.25. The Seahawks are coming off an embarrassing loss to the Rams, in which they lost both of their starting tackles. Even by week one standards, it was a tough week. But the Seahawks' fantasy prospects still look fairly encouraging. For one thing, they didn't fight against a pass-first game environment last week. They had an expected pass rate of 65% and leaned into the environment with a 66% pass rate. Then I've got a chart here that shows expected pass rate versus actual pass rate, and it's broken up into four quadrants. In the bottom right, you're looking at teams that are dictating the pass. These are kind of rare teams like the Chiefs usually that are actually in games where they're ahead. Uh, and don't really need to pass, but they are creating a pass-heavy environment because that's how they win. Uh, in the top right, you've got teams that are passing, but the game script called for them to pass, and they just kind of went with it. Uh, the Vikings were kind of the kings of that last year, the Buccaneers as well last year, that kind of team where they were passing. They weren't always like in a good position, but they were passing a lot. Uh, on the bottom left is dictating the run. These are kind of your classic playing from ahead type of scripts. Um, they're run heavy, but very understandable. And then in the top right is kind of the Falcons corner, usually, where it's teams that are in positions where you would expect them to pass, but they just won't. Uh, and the Seahawks in this are in the top right. So they're passing in passing game scripts, kind of that, that Viking style. The 2023 season has given us teams like the Cardinals and the Falcons. These squads will spend week after week 
hiding their quarterback, regardless of what playing to win would look like. The Seahawks had a chance to curl into a ball against the Rams, but they didn't. That's a good sign for their ability to feed a deep group of weapons. And Geno Smith's play also looks pretty encouraging. Geno Smith here on the EPA per game chart, uh, good success rate, a little bit below where we want in terms of EPA. Smith was quarterback 14 in EPA per play, but he was very consistent, finishing quarterback 6 in success rate. And for now, Smith's target tree looks predictable. Then I've got DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and Jackson Smith in Jigba here. And the thing that really pops out is that Lockett and Metcalf have a big lead in the first read targets over JSN right now. They also had 90% plus route participation and JSN was at 66%. Jackson Smith and Jigba may eventually prove to be a key piece of the offensive game plan, but for now he profiles as a part-time receiver who is not being schemed targets. His 66% route participation is very much a part-time number, while DK Metcalf 93% and Tyler Lockett 90% despite leaving the field to be evaluated for a concussion continue to record high-end route participation. Moreover, JSN's first read target rate, 11%, was pretty weak. Metcalf and Lockett, 19% for both, remain clearly ahead in the target pecking order. If the Seahawks are looking to get the ball out quickly without their starting tackles, it's possible we see more short targets to the rookie. But after JSN's underlying usage in week one, that feels like wish casting. In the backfield, Kenneth Walker's underlying numbers were somewhat exciting. His 18% target share is currently tied for RB4. Paired with a strong 65% snap share, Walker looks like a potential workhorse. Then I've got a chart here from Fantasy Life showing the top five running backs in target share last week. Bijan Robinson, Roshan Johnson, Tyler Algier, Kenneth Walker, and Dalvin Cook. But Walker is probably the guy we thought he was. After a terrible 0.63 yards per hour run as a rookie, Walker was somehow much worse last week turning four receptions into just three yards for a 0.19 yards per route run. And while it was nice that Walker saw some passing game work, the share in target share is doing a lot of work. 24 running backs saw four plus targets in week one. He saw a big piece of the pie, but it was a small pie. Still, if Walker can add a bit of receiving work to his explosive rushing ability, he should turn in some huge weeks. Predicting those games is going to be difficult, though. Walker was highly inconsistent as a rusher last season, with a 35% success rate. That red flag popped up in week one as well, with Walker turning in a gross 25% success rate. But Walker remains a home run hitter, and although the Lions' run defense held up well against an underwhelming Chiefs rushing attack, they'll have their hands full trying to bottle up Walker's explosive rushing ability. He profiles as a boom-bust RB2. Moving to the Lions, whose implied team total is 26.25. The Lions are one of the few teams that had a genuinely good time in Week 1, and they now get a Seahawks defense that could be very poor against the pass. Matthew Stafford carved up the Seahawks, who currently rank dead last in dropback success rate and coverage grade. The Seahawks also generated very little pressure against Los Angeles, which is highly concerning given the poor state of the Rams' offensive line last year. I've got a chart here showing the passing matchup. The Seahawks red across the board. They really didn't do anything well against the Rams. They didn't get to Stafford, and they didn't hold up in the secondary either. For Jared Goff, matchup really matters. He finished quarterback nine in EPA per play in week one, 
but was far weaker in success rate, finishing 19th. Against strong defenses, that lack of consistency could get him into trouble, but he should be fine in week two. And I've got Goff's uh, chart here for EPA per game and success rate. He's kind of like in negative aggression territory where his EPA per game was actually higher than you would expect based on a, an unimpressive success rate. Still, we shouldn't expect to see a ton of passing volume for the Lions this week, especially if the Seahawks have trouble putting up points. The Lions turned in a minus 6% pass rate over expected against the Chiefs and posted a very conservative 10% rate on first down. Dan Campbell's Lions can be counted on to play to win. Campbell doesn't hide from better teams like Arthur Smith does. But when the game script allows, Campbell is also quite happy to pound the rock. With an improved defense, Detroit is a strong contender to be one of the NFL's biggest establishers. Then I've got the chart here showing expected pass rate versus pass rate. And the last week, the Lions were clearly dictating the run. But overall passing volume isn't a huge concern for Amon Ross St. Brown, given how important he is to the Lions passing attack. The Chiefs were fully aware that St. Brown would be leading the charge in the passing game, doubling him on 31% of his routes. But St. Brown still saw 28% of the Lions targets with a 22% targets per route run. Against a Seattle pass defense that could be worse than the Chiefs, he should have no trouble operating as a high-end fantasy wide receiver one. Then I've got Amon St. Brown's chart here, pointing out the high double coverage rate uh, and pretty strong numbers across the board, including 100% route participation. Sam Laporta looks like the second most interesting play in the passing game. Josh Reynolds led the rookie in route participation, 81% to 71%, target share, 21% to 17%, and first read target rate, 17% to 15%. But tight end eligibility goes a long way, and Laporta looks like the Lions' clear tight end one. Then I've got a chart here from Fantasy Life showing Laporta's route participation at 72%, Brock Wright at 14%, and James Mitchell at 3%. So a big lead for Laporta in terms of the routes. Goff's upside for an efficient passing day should mean good things for Jameer Gibbs as well. The rookie recorded just a 27% snap share against the Chiefs, but he was involved when on the field, especially as a receiver, with a 22% targets per outrun. This isn't typically an eye test type of article, but Gibbs also passed the eye test with flying colors. And Dan Campbell agrees, saying after the game that Gibbs will begin to get more touches now, so that was just the beginning last night. Gibbs profiles as a low floor play this week, but his athleticism and receiving ability make him a risk worth taking. But if the Lions play from ahead, David Montgomery could easily outproduce his backfield mate once again. The Seahawks don't look particularly strong against the run. Last week, they primarily faced off against the famously unathletic Kyron Williams, yet they finished 25th in EPA allowed per rush. And I've got a chart here showing the Seahawks finished 25th in EPA allowed per rush, 19th in rushing success rate, and they were 12th in PFF's run grades. And even with a reduction in snaps... Montgomery looks like a potential early down workhorse this week, who could also catch a few passes. Despite not seeing any targets last week, his 53% route participation indicates some hidden upside. As Gibbs earns more work, Montgomery may eventually become a very unappealing play. But he's a solid RB2 option this week. The next game is the Packers at Falcons. Packers implied team total, 19.5. A lot of weird things happen at the start of an NFL season. But I still find it genuinely shocking to see Jordan Love at the top of the EPA per play leaderboard. But it makes sense, 
sort of. Love just faced a Bears defense that was absolutely atrocious against the pass in 2022. Because the Bears' offense was also bad, and they couldn't stop the run either, teams ran on them both regularly and successfully. The Bears ranked 25th in rushing success rate and 28th in EPA allowed per rush. But they were even worse against the pass, ranking dead last in dropback success rate and EPA allowed per dropback. Their flailing pass defense was truly in a league of its own last year. Then I've got uh, this chart. I referenced this earlier where the Bears were kind of making the Raiders look normal. Uh, The Bears were a huge outlier in terms of their inability to stop anything last year, uh, both in the pass and the run, but they were especially poor against the pass. The Falcons' defense wasn't great in 2022 either, but it acquitted itself far better in Week 1. Although the unit's performance was almost certainly inflated by facing a rookie quarterback, the Falcons currently rank 5th in dropback success rate and 2nd in PFF's coverage grades. Then I've got a chart here showing that the Falcons, they didn't have a great pass rush, 20th in pass rush grade, 21st in quick pressure per dropback, but very good in coverage grade, dropback success rate, and EPA allowed per dropback. Love was highly efficient against the Bears, but he wasn't especially consistent, finishing QB1 in EPA per play, but just QB24 in success rate. From a consistency standpoint, Love trailed Zach Wilson and Sam Howell. Then I've got this EPA per game chart that I've referenced a few times. Love, like, very clearly in the negative regression warning zone. Passing volume is another concern. The Packers posted a minus 5% pass rate over expected against the Bears and very much embraced the run-heavy game script the Bears afforded them. And I've got a chart here showing that the Packers were very much in the dictating the run section. They were in a position to run, but they, they definitely leaned into that. This week, we can confidently say that the Falcons will offer the Packers plenty of rushing opportunities. I'm willing to bet that the Packers will happily take them up on it, limiting passing volume on top of a potential drop in efficiency. I get it. We're all expecting Love to regress after an elite week one showing. But what I'm driving at is that Love could regress significantly in week two. With volume and efficiency concerns, I'd strongly caution anyone looking to chase last week's glory. But the Packers do offer a couple of interesting plays. Aaron Jones' usage was ultimately limited by a hamstring injury, but as Dwayne McFarlane notes, his usage before the injury was very encouraging. Quote, Jones was operating as the number one with 70% of the snaps and 73% route participation before the hamstring injury. He looked as spry as ever in the passing attack with a 5.38 yards per route run and 25% targets per route run. But that hamstring injury may cost Jones week two. Jones was a DNP on Wednesday and Thursday. If he misses this game, A.J. Dillon could have a big workload as part of a conservative game plan. Dillon would likely consolidate most of Jones' work, and his week one receiving involvement was encouraging. He looks like a rock-solid RB2 if Jones is out. Then I've got a chart here from Fantasy Life showing Dillon's targets per route run of 30%, even higher than Aaron Jones'. Uh, He definitely was behind Jones, but once he got out there, he was in a very encouraging role. Even with limited passing volume and middling quarterback play, Luke Musgrave already looks like a very solid tight end option. In his very first game, Musgrave logged elite 80% route participation, a 15% target share, and was heavily involved in the play-action game. 
As I covered this summer, play-action routes are crucial for touchdown upside at the tight end position. Musgrave's role already looks borderline elite. Hopefully, the talent is there as well. Then I've got a chart here from Fantasy Life showing an 80% route rate for Musgrave and only 13% for Josiah DeGuara, who was the tight end two last week. Moving to the Falcons, whose implied team total is 21. The NFL offseason offers a wide menu of things that probably won't happen. But if they did happen, oh man, could you imagine? This menu is not for the squeamish. It mostly leads to upset stomachs and severe heartburn. Trust me, I order off it a lot. Because while this menu is risky, when a dish hits, it hits. Unfortunately, our family style order of the Falcons passing game has given everyone explosive diarrhea. And then I have a chart here showing the Falcons and their pass rate of expected on first and 10 and overall. They are in the very bottom corner of the chart, about as run heavy as it gets. The Falcons are who we feared they were. With a minus 18% pass rate of expected on first and 10, only the Broncos established it more on first down. And Atlanta's overall pass rate of expected of minus 12% was the lowest of week one. As they did in 2022, the Falcons will make run-heavy teams look balanced by comparison. But it's hard to blame Arthur Smith for his offensive approach. The man has Desmond Ritter as his starting quarterback. Ritter didn't embarrass himself against the Panthers, but Smith is clearly worried that he could make a mess of things with more opportunity. Ritter ranked quarterback 26 in success rate and quarterback 24 in EPA per play. It was not an encouraging 2023 debut. Then I've got the EPA per game chart here. As I mentioned, Ritter didn't embarrass himself, but he is in the bottom left here. He is not where we want to see uh, in terms of success rate or in terms of his efficiency. So poor play, not disastrous play. Ritter now gets a Packers defense that played well against the Bears. In particular, they showed an ability to generate pressure quickly last week. This is a concern given Ritter's struggles against pressure dating back to his play at the University of Cincinnati. Then I've got the matchup chart here for uh, the passing offense and the Packers passing defense. And yeah, it shows quick pressure per dropback for the Packers was the best thing they did last week. They rank sixth in that. Falcons rank 25th in preventing quick pressure. So pressure could definitely be an issue this week. With the need to quickly beat the pass rush, Ritter is less likely to hit shots downfield. This is bad news for Kyle Pitts, who continued to operate as a deep threat with a 16.3 ADOT against the Panthers. Pitt's week one underlying usage was encouraging. His 91% route participation is tied for tight end two. Many of us spent the late summer worried that he would be a part-time player due to limited preseason snaps, but Pitt saw elite route participation in week one. Then I have a chart showing route participation uh, from all of the tight ends last week. Dallas Goddard had 92% route participation. That was the only one higher then Kyle Pitts, Zach Ertz, and Durham Smythe tied with Kyle Pitts at 91%. Due to the Falcons' offensive nature, it's going to be a bumpy ride with Pitts, but you knew that when you drafted him. He should at least be on the field at an elite rate, even if Ritter mostly ignores him. Speaking of ignored, Drake London saw just one target in the season opener, which he failed to secure. His week one goose egg is a big victory for those who thought the Falcons' offensive issues would supersede his immense talent. But London also logged 91% route participation. And it's worth zooming out here. London was drafted number eight overall, 
delivered 2.07 yards per hour as a rookie, and Mac Hollins is his biggest target competition at wide receiver. Like London, it'll be a bumpy ride, and this game script does not look ideal, but there will be better days ahead. But for this week, Bijan Robinson looks like the best play by far in Atlanta. Robinson posted an absurd 35% target share to begin his NFL debut. Yes, Tyler Algier led the backfield in carries, but Robinson's passing game involvement remains highly encouraging, entering a matchup where Ritter will be looking to get the ball out quickly. Then I've got a chart from Fantasy Life showing the target shares of the running backs for Atlanta last week. Bijan Robinson at 35%, Tyler Algier at 18%. And Robinson's usage could spike if the Packers can keep things more competitive than the Panthers did. I've got a tweet here from Dwayne McFarlane saying one more note on the Bijan versus Algier rushing attempt splits. First three quarters, Bijan 60%, Algier 40%. Fourth quarter, Bijan 9%, Algier 82%. The game script could matter a lot. Falcons led by four plus on nine of 15 plays in the fourth quarter. Robinson profiles as a clear cut running back one, but the Falcons should be able to run enough this week to keep Tyler Algier in play is a potential touchdown score. All right, that'll do it for this free preview of the week two walkthrough. I hope you enjoyed that. The next game is the Chiefs at Jaguars. Just saying, if you want to sign up, uh, you can go ahead and and do that over at legendaryupside.com. I also do have some $50 underdog credits available if you sign up for the yearly subscription, which at this point would get you all of my off-season content, all of my dynasty content, rookie rankings, uh, all of the pre-draft rookie stuff. It would also give you all the best ball content, all the redraft content, uh, everything that I do on the running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends next summer. So, you know, pretty good time to sign up, given that you'll get the rest of the walkthrough as part of that as well. If you go to legendaryupside.com slash legup-perks, you'll get the information there uh, on how to get a $50 underdog credit by signing up. Um, But hope to see you over there. Hope to see you in the Discord as well. And thanks for listening.